Welcome to the Mavericks and Misfits podcast, where not quite fitting into the religious status quo is a good thing. Slick church trends deceive us. Denominational traditions can blind us, but truth from the heart of God always transforms us. And now, here's our host, a self-proclaimed ministry maverick and church misfit, Jeff Lyle. Hey friends, welcome back to the Mavericks and Misfits podcast. So grateful to be able to speak to you today as we continue our in-depth look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In these recent episodes, we're just basically going through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and we're talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we are well into this study, and if you are tuning in for the first time, uh, we welcome you, and I'm grateful that you've uh, kind of stumbled upon us or somebody told you about Mavericks and Misfits, and you have, um, you've searched and you've found us, and I want to encourage you. Take advantage of the teachings that occurred before this episode that you're looking listening to and um, see if uh, you might get some help in there. I think these issues of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are critical in this juncture. I think churches and Christians are operating on uh, the power of lesser things, lesser um, endowments than the work presence, person, power of the Holy Spirit. And I think it shows. I think that um, the the shaking that is occurring in the church through uh, the last um, couple of years of intense cultural crisis of COVID-19, the shutting down of churches, the rising of sickness, um, the, quite frankly, the missed prophecies that have been given concerning the political arena and the presidential election there is a there's just a lot of drama going on in the church as there is in the culture and if there was ever a time where christians need to be leaning upon something other than their own understanding i mean we're never supposed to do that but if there's ever a time where the church has got to stop leaning on our own understanding and got to stop operating in our own power and got to stop you know relying on programs and cultural versions of Christianity and ministry. That time is now. Um, it is getting thick. It is um, crunch time. It is game on. And it's only going to get more intense. And so if there's ever a time where you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, need to know that you are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you are ministering from the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not just your skills or just your experience or from your education, but you're, you're literally partnering with the Holy Spirit for ministry. Well, friends, that time is now. So whether you're in ministry vocationally or if you're a Christian who works in the marketplace and is just living your life, it doesn't matter. We must have the Holy Spirit. And um, so that's why I'm doing these these. Um, episodes on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the last couple have been about the gift of prophecy. I want to give you a third and final installment on prophecy. We might do one more, not positive, but um, I'm considering doing a, a how-to, what, what do we do to be able to either um, receive the gift of prophecy, which that in and of itself can be debated if even that phrase is legitimate, receiving the gift of prophecy. I actually think if you're saved, you have the potential to prophesy, and I will share that with you today. But for uh, argument's sake, get, what do we do to receive the gift of prophecy, to initiate the gift of prophecy, to grow in the gift of prophecy? Yeah, I think I actually will do, do another episode because the more I talk about it, the more I think it, it's warranted. But today I want to give you a subject that um, is probably on a lot of people's minds, and it's the issue of human errors in prophecy. Is it possible to have human error in prophecy, and if someone prophesies and that prophecy does not come to pass, is that necessarily mark that person as a false prophet? 
And do we reject them? Do they delegitimize themselves from ever giving another prophetic word if they give a word and miss it? And I think it's a big question because we've got a lot of very um, well-known prophets in America that have really went out on a limb uh, about the election and declared things would happen that didn't happen. And uh, I think that because of that, um, the church is getting a little bit of a black eye on this thing because here go the Christians saying all these things. They mingled politics with prophecy and um, it didn't turn out the way they said. So what do we do? Um, are those people that prophesied that Donald Trump would get another four years? Are they false prophets? Do we re- reject them? I don't think so. Uh, I think that depending on how they respond to their you know, failed prophetic word, uh, I think that they may have great legitimacy. Now, if they respond to it by defending it or excusing it or blaming on something else, to me, you lose credibility when you do that. But let's, let's talk about this today. Um, I guess the question that I'm asking is, are there New Testament examples of the potential for human error uh, while exercising the gift of prophecy? I mean, seriously, are, are, is there anything in the Bible that would lend itself to saying, yes, there is the possibility of a true prophet missing it from time to time, but still um, being considered a true prophet? And my answer is yes. Um, I'm going to show you one particular example in a man named Agabus from the book of Acts. But uh, if you didn't listen to the last episode, we you probably need to maybe even put in this one on pause and go back and listen to the last episode because critical is the need to distinguish between Old Testament prophets and the New Testament gift of prophecy. And that's what the last episode co- uh, covered. So I'm going to assume that you listen to that and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, uh, uh, you know, going through that again. And so today I just want to talk to you about Agabus and I want to talk to you about how this example Um, clarifies for me that while it should never be regular and um, it shouldn't be a habitual missing the mark, it is possible that a true prophet can miss some of the details of the prophecy and get it wrong. So here's here's the deal. You're going to want to mark Acts chapter 11, and uh, that's the end of Acts chapter 11 and verses 27 and 28. That's where we're introduced to the prophet whose name is Agabus, but more particularly in Acts 21, verses 10 through 14, we find this prophet named Agabus. And again, in Acts 11, he had already given a valid, precise prophecy about a, um, a wide-scale famine that was going to happen. And um, the Bible is very clear that that famine came to pass in the days of Claudius, and it actually happened. So Agabus, just get this, he's named as a prophet. He's certified as giving a true prophecy. There's nothing anywhere in scripture that lends us to believe he was anything other than a spirit-filled, sincerely converted prophet of God in the New Testament. And so, again, hands down, he's named. He's named as being true. He's recognized. He's actively engaged in prophetic ministry in the early church, and he is named as a man holding the office of the prophet. But here we're going to find him later on in Acts chapter 21. And so Agabus gives this prophetic word to Paul about the dangers of Paul potentially going up to Jerusalem. People were coming hard and heavy after Paul. Agabus gets this word from God about, oh no, if you go to Jerusalem, Paul, you're going to be in trouble. There is danger awaiting you there. And again, this was an accurate word that he received from the Lord. Clearly, there was danger in Jerusalem for Paul. So Agabus receives a divine revelation about danger manifesting if Paul decides to journey to Jerusalem. Now, that all was true. However, when Agabus begins to give this prophecy in detail, 
he actually includes some details that we learn later did not come to pass. So he received the clear and accurate communication, the revelation. God gives the revelation. He receives the big picture, a warning about the dangers awaiting Paul in Jerusalem. So the revelation from God obviously was accurate, but as the human interpretation, remember that from the last episode, really the last two, the human interpretation of the divine revelation, though it was accurate in the big picture, the details of it actually proved to be wrong. I'm just going to say it. He got it wrong. He got the big picture right. He's a proven prophet. He's a named prophet. He's a recognized prophet. He's already given true prophecies. But on this one, Agabus included in some details in the prophetic word to Paul. And if you've got a Bible, look in Acts 21.11. And if you don't have a Bible open right now, write it down. Acts 21.11. Here's part of the prophecy that Agabus said to Paul. He said, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. He was talking about Paul. He had taken Paul's uh, sash where he tied his stuff together, his, his clothing, and his, it's called a belt, and he binds his hands as a prophetic act, like it's this prophetic picture. And he says, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. And then he gives a second detail. He says, the Jews will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And that was kind of the, the, the entire prophecy. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, danger will find you. And the danger, Paul, will be that the Jews there are going to bind you and they're going to deliver you into the hands of the detail, uh, into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, Agabus didn't give Paul any application of the prophetic word. He did not say, don't go. He just said, here's the prophecy. But the others who were with them clearly did so. And so based on the prophecy that Agabus gave, all of Paul's companions and Agabus was in the mix, their companions begged Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And watch this. Paul refused their application of the revelation. And he went ahead and traveled on to Jerusalem. Now watch this, guys. Now I want you to, I want you to watch this. Paul did not declare the prophecy of Agabus as being untrue, even though he clearly disregarded the application of it. And so I want you to think about that. Agabus, a known prophet, gives a prophetic word. The big picture is true. There were definitely, and we'll see this in a moment, there definitely was danger at Jerusalem for Paul. But Paul hears the prophetic word from a recognized prophet, and, and then in consensus, as they in community processed what to do with the prophetic word that Agabus gave, Paul's conclusion was, no, I'm not going to obey the word from the prophet. Now, that's an entirely different uh, episode that we could talk about. But Paul, may he did, he did not declare the prophecy as being false, but he clearly disregarded the application of it. And everybody but Paul thought he should not go to Jerusalem. Agabus didn't think he should go. The people they were with didn't think he should go. But Paul disregarded the application of the prophetic word. Now, very quickly, let's use the three components of stewarding, stewarding a prophetic word. Remember what they are. Revelation, that means God gives a perfect word. There's no error in it. And that's a divine act. But the interpretation of the revelation is a human process. And then you have the application of the interpretation. So three components, revelation, interpretation, application. Revelation is divine. It's perfect and flawless. God never gives a mistaken word. But the interpretation and the application are the human elements, and they can involve human error. And in this case with Agabus, that's exactly what happened. There was human error. And it, here we go. Let's just break it down. 
So in Agabus' prophecy, you've got revelation. God communicates to Agabus about the impending dangers awaiting Paul at Jerusalem. That's the revelation. This was a divine and a perfect, flawless revelation, and it was true. Now, the interpretation is on Agabus. So he gets this word. He gets this picture. We're not told exactly how he received it, but he gets a communication from heaven. And Agabus receives the prophetic word and acts it out in a prophetic demonstration using Paul's belt. And he adds the details of the Jewish opponents binding Paul and turning him over to the Gentiles. He gives this detail. Now, Agabus's general understanding is indeed accurate, but his precise details don't come to pass. You, you would have to look at the actual events, and this, this, is, this plays out in Acts 21 and 22. If you look at the actual events seen in, in Acts 21, 33, and then again in Acts 22, 29, Paul was not bound by the Jews. He was bound by the Gentiles. It was the exact opposite. The Jews did not bind Paul. Agabus said that they would, but they didn't. In fact, it was the Gentiles that bound Paul. And the Jews actually tried to kill Paul, and the Gentiles were the ones who carried him away initially to rescue him from the Jews. Now, remember, it says that the Jews were going to, Paul, excuse me, Agabus's prophecy back in 2111 of Acts said that the Jews would deliver Paul into the hands of the Gentiles. And that is not what happened. It was that the Gentiles actually had to go in there and rescue Paul because the Jews were going to probably kill him. So the Jews didn't say, here, Gentiles, take Paul and, and carry him away. It, it, those details did not come to pass. So the interpretation of Agabus was, um, it contained errors. There's no getting around it. Yet, Agabus is clearly stated in Scripture to be a true prophet of God. Nobody rose up and said, Agabus is a false prophet. Down with Agabus. Never listen to Agabus again. No, he's clearly stated in Scripture to this very day to be a true prophet of God in the New Testament. By the way, not only did Agabus um, you know, get the, the interpretation wrong, but let's go to the application. Because of the details of his prophecy, the concluding application by Paul's companions was to instruct Paul not to travel to Jerusalem. They said, don't go up there. And Paul rejects this application and goes to Jerusalem. And of course, what happened? Well, he encounters the trouble that generally characterized the original prophecy. So here's where we get into some debatable area. Agabus gives a prophecy and the general tone of it is absolutely true, but the details of it were inaccurate. Is he a false prophet? Well, I'm going to tell you, there's a group of people today that would say, false prophet, he didn't get every detail right. He is a false prophet. He is to be stoned outside the city gates. That's what all these prophets in America are doing. They, they, they are completely out of the will of God, and, and, and there's this uproar because of missed um, you know, details in prophecy. And so what we've got to do is we've got to slow down a little bit, and we, we've got to note a couple of things. This is a New Testament example. This is not an Old Testament prophet. This is a New Testament prophet. So we can notate some things. First of all, a true prophetically gifted tr Christian is actually able to receive a perfect prophetic word from God while potentially making errors in interpreting some of the details of that prophecy. And yet he, can, he or she can still be regarded as a true prophet, even like in Agabus' case, by the, by the Apostle Paul. 
The Apostle Paul still regarded Agabus as a true prophet, even though Agabus got some of the details wrong. So this is really important for us. Now, let me get into this issue of cessationism. Cessationism is the belief system that says the supernatural giftings of the Holy Spirit stopped somewhere around the end of the first century. There's various reasons why cessationists believe that. Some believe that all of the supernatural stuff stopped when the writings of the scripture, the, what would become the canon of scripture, when all of those writings were completed, signs and wonders weren't needed, and therefore the Bible replaces the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's a terrible idea, and the reason why it's terrible is because the Bible never says anything remotely close to that. It is a totally fabricated, man-made idea that the gifts were replaced by the Bible. It's simply wrong. And anybody that tells you that is probably just repeating something that was taught them. And my question would be, if, if the Word of God replaced the gifts, then use the Word of God to show me that the gifts were replaced. Don't just decide for yourself and start repeating it over and over again that the Bible replaced the gifts of the Spirit because it's completely wrong. The gifts of the Spirit are ministry power. They're ministry tools. And the Bible does not replace it. And I'm a Bible guy. I love the Word of God. That's why I'm taking the time to teach you about the gifts of the Spirit through the Word of God. But cessationists demand that when it comes to this issue of, of um, prophecy, a cessationist will demand that a singular error in any presumably prophetic word therefore necessitates the conclusion that the person giving the prophetic word is a false prophet. Why? Because cessationists leave no margin for the human element, which is potential error. If there's a human element, there is potential error. But cessationists leave no margin for that in the prophetic gift being stewarded. And cessationists don't merely... Uh, they, I think the problem that I have is cessationists don't negate many of the other gifts, even as they will acknowledge that those gifts can also be attached to human error. But cessationists have no consistent explanation as to why they believe that some spiritual gifts can remain valid while containing human error, like teaching, like leading, like administration, like helps. They, all of that stuff has potential for human error. Giving. Um, all of that has potential error, but they don't say that those gifts are no longer valid when somebody makes an error with them. But spiritual gifts like prophecy, they believe they must be rejected due to the reality of occasional human error. So when we're taking a, like a long look at the understanding of the gift of prophecy, it's also important to, to make a distinction between the office of a prophet and Christians who merely operate in the spiritual gift of prophecy. There's a difference between holding an office of a prophet. You got Ephesians 4, the office of a prophet still exists in the New Testament church, but most people who prophesy will not hold the office of a prophet. So forgive me if that's a little too cumbersome and it gets a little too complicated, but these are important uh, variables that we have to discuss. Um, so first of all, we this, this first category um, of the office of a prophet uh, we, we've got like Old Testament writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Um, these guys would be affirmed by cessationists and charismatics as those who held the office of a prophet. These men received direct revelation from God and were commanded by God to speak and or write down the revelation that was then preserved by God in the Bible. Those written words carry the full authority of God. And they are binding as his holy, infallible word. 
The writings of the prophets are prophecy, but they are binding. They are inscripturated. They're in the Bible, and they are God's holy, infallible word. And God specifically chose these prophets. They were dispatched on an assignment from God to give his messages to the appointed audience in, in both the spoken and the written modes of communication. And at the core of these writing prophets in the Old Testament spoke and wrote with the authority of God himself. Now, there's also the reality of the office of prophets in the writings of the New Testament. Remember with me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, specifies the office of a prophet among the other church offices. It, 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 let me just read the verses from Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Speaking of Jesus, it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, not only is the office of prophet stated as a reality in the first century church, we also see that this office would continue until, until what? Until unity of the faith, maturity, and full Christ-likeness is achieved in the church. Now, guys, my point here is not to debate how long the office of prophet should be considered as active and valid in the church, but let's just say this. Based on Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, can any reasonable believer declare that at any time period in church history, could we be classified as having arrived at the measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ? Has that time occurred? Do you look at the church today and say, yes, we are at the measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ? Do, do we look at the church today and say, we have attained the unity of the faith? The clear answer to that is no. Look at how many denominations and split-offs and you know branches of Christianity there are. We haven't attained to the unity of faith. It's the exact opposite. And have we attained to the full knowledge of the Son of God? Do we know Jesus as fully as he can be known? No. And the Bible says that the office of prophet among the other four in the church will continue until this occurs. So that means until we have the measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ, which clearly hasn't happened, we have the office of the prophet. So we see the validity of Old Testament prophets, the writings inscripturated, the authority, they wrote the word of God. But we also see the validity of the office of prophets in the New Testament during the first century. And these two realities are huge, but but they still need to be distinguished from Christians who were merely gifted by the Holy Spirit to prophesy. And let me just use the remainder of today's episode, just a few more minutes, to make a distinction between the gift of prophecy versus the office of prophet. So you go to Acts 13, write down Acts 13.1, and we're told that at the church of Antioch there were certain named prophets and teachers. We've already mentioned Agabus as a recognized prophet in the church, but in Acts 15, you've got two men that are named, Judas and Silas. So Acts 13, there are certain prophets that were recognized there at Antioch. In Acts 15, you've got the named prophets of Judas and Silas. They're recognized prophets. Now, why is this important? Because it clearly reveals that there are people in the New Testament church that are recognized as God-ordained prophets. It's right there in the Bible. There may not be thousands upon thousands upon thousands, not right now, not even then, but they are there. 
And so to say that there's no more prophets in the New Testament church, you need to show me why. Because the Bible says they're there. Ephesians chapter 4 says they're going to continue until we all attain to the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so if you're saying that there are no prophets anymore, you better get some Bible on that because the Bible says the exact opposite. Now, distinction needs to be made, however, that not everybody who prophesies is going to be recognized as holding the office of a prophet in the church. Now, every prophet will prophesy, but not everyone who exercised a prophetic gift would cement themselves in the office uh, of a prophet. So I think it's important that we recognize there are a lot of people gifted to prophesy who do not hold the office of the prophet. I would say most Christians who are gifted to prophesy will not hold the recognized office of a prophet. It's like just like there are people with shepherding skills who are not recognized as pastors vocationally. There are people who have great ability to teach who are not going to be recognized as pastors. The office is different than the gifting. And again, back to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we read of the spiritual gift of prophecy. As a matter of fact, we read it as being labeled as the high, most highly valuable and exalted gift among all the gifts of the Spirit. And again, in Romans 12, we see prophecy mentioned. So clearly, there were Christians in the church who utilized the gift of prophecy, but they were not actually officed as prophets. Are there examples of this? Yeah. You've got um, Philip's four unmarried daughters who were virgins. Acts 21 says they all prophesied, but nowhere are they described as holding the office of prophet in the church. There's also unnamed men and women at the church of Corinth who are described as prophesying, yet never holding any office. You look in 1 Corinthians 11 about that. Paul gives instructions to the Christians at Corinth about how to prophesy, yet they're never called prophets in the strictest sense of the word. Um, then again, in Romans 12, 5, there's people that are called to prophesy according to the measure of faith they have been given, but they're not called prophets. Um, even further, Acts 19, there's 12 men in Acts 19 who, upon receiving the Holy Spirit, they begin to prophesy. Now, listen, they're not called office prophets to the church, but they clearly operated in the ability from God to prophesy. you got the church in Corinth. Again, Paul gives a unilateral exhortation to any and all believers to pursue the gift of prophecy. And there's no commentary whatsoever that would lead anyone to believe that they would be granted an official office of prophet within the church. So Paul's saying the gift is available to all. I want you all to prophesy. I want you all to go after it. I want you to desire the gift of prophecy more than any other gift. But Paul doesn't say, and when you prophesy, you will be a church prophet. And so the reason why these examples are important is because they clearly highlight a shift in understanding the way an Old Testament paradigm of prophets and prophecy was revealed versus the function of prophets and prophesying in the New Testament. There's a distinction, and if we don't hold to that distinction, we're going to, again, superimpose an Old Testament prophet paradigm onto the New Testament gift of prophecy, and so much error and confusion occurs because of that. We're actually dealing with somewhat apples and oranges here. And if you're a cessationist, like I used to be, much of the cessationist confusion concerning the gift of prophecy 
is actually able to be removed when we establish the fact that our views on the New Testament gift of prophecy are not to be drawn from the template of Old Testament paradigms. There's some overlap, but the Old Testament prophet is not a template for those who operate with the spiritual gift of prophecy in the New Testament. Now listen, I'm, I'm kind of running out of time, so I always go a little longer than what I, I thought I would, but let me just give you a few things to think about in these last few moments. In the Old Testament, God handpicked the prophet. God spoke directly to that individual. That individual was therefore accountable to speak to his appointed audience. And whatever that prophecy was, God had divinely deposited it in that prophet. And so that Old Testament prophet was therefore strictly accountable for unblemished deliverance of that prophetic word, whether it was an, an oral verbal prophecy or written prophecy or both. Now, Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that not everybody in the church is going to prophesy. It's right there. Not everybody in the church is going to, pro is going to prophesy. But he does indicate that it's a potential for everybody to prophesy. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And the reality is seen when he exhorts all of those Christians to earnestly desire prophecy above all other gifts. So guys, if it wasn't available to all believers, why then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did Paul exhort them to pursue the gift? If it's not available for everybody, the Holy Spirit would not have motivated Paul to write down, tell the people to desire that gift and pursue it more than any other. So it's available to you. It's actually available to you. And I think that it will be un un unlocked, if you want to call it that way, activated in you if you'll continue to pursue it. Now, let me, give this, let me give this word. This is important. I'm just going to take a few extra minutes. I think a clarification is warranted concerning the levels of authority that are attached to various types of prophetic communication. Okay, it, not all prophetic words carry the same weight of authority. That's a big deal. Now, anything in the Bible, all Bible prophecies, they're, they're infallible. They're supreme. They're always binding. What is written in our Bible is the final authority in every area to which it speaks. And remember what Peter said, no private prophecy can ever be validated if it's not aligned with the scripture. You might want to write down 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Uh, basically what Peter wrote was this, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's doing two things here. He's firstly establishing inscripturated prophecy, Bible prophecy. That is the lens through which any and other, excuse me, any and all other prophetic words must be evaluated. Prophetic words must be evaluated through the lens of Scripture, and if anything contradicts what's written in the Scriptures, that is a false prophecy. You don't pray about it. If it contradicts Scripture, it's a false prophecy. So, again, the Bible is the standard by which every other spoken prophetic word must be measured. And so we're, when, when we're in the arena when somebody receives a prophetic word from the Lord, there must be criteria by which to evaluate the validity of that prophecy. Nobody can speak today with the infallible authority by which Scripture communicates. Anybody that's prophesying constantly and saying, you better listen to me, thus saith the Lord, this is the binding authority, 
man, that is so reckless at the best. Best case scenarios, that's an immature person. At the worst case scenario, it's a person trying to control you by attaching full divine authority to what comes out of their mouth. Uh, I don't listen to people like that. Um, I don't care how much of a track record they got. If somebody's trying to manipulate and control by saying, you have to listen to me because this is the word of God coming out of my mouth, that's a prophet that doesn't understand the New Testament gift of prophecy. Uh, why? Because no verbal word of prophecy today can carry that same unquestionable authority as does the word of God. And the stewarding of the gift of prophecy always carries with it a lesser degree, always, of binding authority. Why? Because it's, that's due to its inherent potential weakness, the human element. It flows from the fallibility of the human component. Think about it. Why else would Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13.9 that we prophesy in part? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13.9, we prophesy in part. That statement alone removes the possibility from anyone declaring that what comes out of their mouths and is ascribed to the gift of prophecy could carry the binding authority of a holy divine communication. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, well, this is prophesied in part. No, in the Old Testament, God spoke to the prophet. The prophet spoke exactly what God said. It was binding. It was authoritative. In the New Testament, we're told that we prophesy in part. There is a potential for human um, deficiency. That's the in part uh, element. New Testament prophecy has to be evaluated in order to be validated. That's another thing that shows us like, man, that's clearly a distinction from Old Testament prophecy. And these are the primary differences between the function of prophecy between the Old Testament and New Testament. And if we can remove the template of Old Testament prophecy from the study of New, the New Testament charisma, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is prophecy, then we're going to be, we're all going to be freed to better understand how God intends this gift to function in the church. So I hope this is helpful for you. I hope that you see that um, we have to be wise. We have to be precise in our thinking and our activation of the gift of prophecy. And for those of you that do prophesy, can I just say this? We need to make sure we're cleaning up our act, man. Quit being reckless with the prophetic word. Don't just give it when it's a spark. Let it turn into a flame. I think too many people release the spark of the prophetic word as soon as they get it. And the problem is they don't process it with the Lord. They don't process it in the community. They just get the thrill of releasing it, and it's sloppy. And a lot of times we end up making mistakes, and it undermines the credibility of the gift of prophecy. We're going to come back with another episode. I'm going to do one more on the gift of prophecy, and I appreciate you tuning into this one. Go to transformingtruth.org. Transformingtruth.org is our umbrella website uh, for the media ministry that God's given me. And uh, check out the resources that are there. Um, also, subscribe to this podcast and um, take advantage of it. If you could take a minute to review it on iTunes, wherever you're listening to it, that would be so helpful for us. Uh, let people know about it. Listen, I'm, I'm trying to help the church by saying these teachings will help you better understand and better steward spiritual gifts. The extremes in the kingdom right now are people that, you know, completely suppress and reject spiritual gifts. And then you've got other people who just are really reckless with them and, and don't have any precision. It's all passion. We need passion and precision. And I think teaching through the gifts of the spirit is the best way to help us know how to flow in the gifts of the spirit. My time's gone and I appreciate you guys tuning in and I hope that you'll continue to tune in. Uh, the next episode will be released in a couple of days. And listen, God bless you. Flow in the gifts of the Spirit. Earnestly desire them. Seek above all other gifts the gift of prophecy and watch God use you 
in your church, in your family, in your community, in your school, wherever you go. Let's prophesy. Let's speak the heart of God to our generation. God bless. See you next time.